Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, for the Sunday special, we're going to be reading a, <laughs> a really, really long road and track article, but this one has to do with McLaren Racing and Zach Brown. Let's not sugarcoat it. It's a long article, and I'm actually really tired as I record this. So let's get straight into it because this article is way more interesting than anything I have to say right now. Zach Brown's impossible task, saving McLaren racing. Understanding the loud, brash American tasked with saving England's most storied racing team. Zach Brown knows McLaren isn't going to win this year. This article was written in August 3rd of 2020. I'm sitting across from the American task with restoring McLaren Racing, the British team which hasn't won a Grand Prix since 2012 and hasn't won a Constructors Championship since 1998 to its presumed rightful place at the top of Formula One. And Brown has no compunction telling me that. Before the 2020 season has even started, his team is already screwed. Mercedes is going to win the, is going to win the championship this year. I don't think there was another sport where someone could say who was going to win with such a high degree of confidence. I am, like Brown, an American, and I'm so used to my sports titans, be they players or owners or GMs or head coaches, talking in bloated euphemisms about their prospects going into any given season. Even the crappiest teams in America will rarely, if ever, concede that they have no chance to win. You play to win the games, all that... You play to win the games, all that tired crap. In America, admitting to your likely defeat is a defeat. So it's strange, yet also refreshing, to hear this kind of admission from one of my countrymen. It's especially startling to hear it from Brown, a man who, at first glance, very much looks looks the part of a man who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. Brown, himself a former race car driver, got this job after after starting up a promotions company called Just Marketing Inc. Catchy and selling it for for a mint. When he walks and talks, he gives off a vibe that I'll characterize as presentable Alex Jones. (laughs) Presentable Alex Jones! That's not a hard bar, though, but in any case. His hair is always slicked back. He never wears undershirts. He has a Frank Muller watch on his wrist that costs four times your rent. He's worth nine figures and would rather die than apologize for it. When I ask him what his favorite crappy car is to drive, his first answer is a Porsche 914, which to me is the polar opposite of a bad car. Then I ask him how many times... No, then I ask him how many cars he has at home. Three. Which cars? It depends on... It depends what day. You ask how many cars are at home. Okay, then how many cars are at a luxury... Or at the luxury paddock that you, that you keep off-site? Probably appropriate to admit... Given its road and track, I've got about 50 between race cars and road cars. You get the vibe. Or do you? Honestly, road and track sent me here to sort to sort out if Brown was a mouthy fraud. The kind of swaggering seasuit type you'd expect to preside over a disastrous ninth place finish in his first full season as chief, and whose IndyCar team failed to qualify for the Indy 500 two years later in part because they were missing a goddamn steering wheel. This is a man you'd expect to be miscast in his current role and to be overinvested in the trite American philosophy that if you project the attitude of a winner, you'll magically become one. But Brown is not a fraud. 
In reality, is the chief architect of what has become the most sophisticated exercise in futility currently happening in the sports world. If you think that's insulting, I want you to come with me and have a look at just how much work, money, and thought Brown and McLaren have put into essentially a lost cause. And this is all before COVID-19 commenced. It's a barnstorming of the entire world. The pursuit of relevance starts here at McLaren headquarters in Woking, in Woking, England. See it now, a sleek campus spread across suitably damp British acres. This campus is anchored by the McLaren Technology Center, a low-slung building that abuts a man-made lake so that the two in tandem form a perfect circle. From above, the building is shaped like a kidney bean that, are, that ate another kidney bean. Curves are big around here, as you might have guessed. Mighty, mighty glass windows wrap around the building in graceful loops, perhaps intentionally echoing the turns of a Grand Prix, Grand Prix course. Everything is smooth surfaces, not a hard corner to be found except along the perfectly manicured hedgerows lining the driveway. 95% NASA, 5% Disney is the log line for the MTC's blueprint, and team engineers aided architects in helping achieve that stated vision. Once inside, you stroll along the boulevard of, of cars McLaren used to dominate Formula One for decades, all of them lovingly maintained and still ready to race. There's the original Austin 7 that Bruce McLaren's old man bought for 1,000, no, bought for 110 NZ, 69 US dollars at the time, and which McLaren, and which McLaren the Younger then used to enter and win his first race under his, under his old man's name. From there, you can trace the evolution of the McLaren car as it gets longer, lower, lighter, and more breathtakingly swift. There's the 2008 car that Lewis Hamilton used to win McLaren's last driver's championship. It's a car that produces so much aerodynamic downforce that you can drive it on a highway that twists upside down and, as long as you stay over 80 miles per hour, the car will stick to that highway. Or so McLaren's PR team would claim. There was also a series of, ca of cases housing the 648 trophies that McLaren has won. Since its inception, 649 if you count another one out front, and yes, they do keep track. But since the cars are the real trophies, these cups and chalices are situated toward the back of the center, opposite of the cafeteria. They face an enclosed workshop on the main floor so that, they're, so that they are always within eyeshot of McLaren's technicians, lest those gentlemen forget to be motivated for a split second. No one here is not working. This building is where the struggle happens. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, those engineers are designing and 3D printing miniature prototypes of both McLaren 2020 cars to be driven by Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz Jr. for wind tunnel testing that are exactly to scale in terms of weight, shape, and aerodynamics. Next door is a test kitchen of sorts where technicians assemble parts for the real cars' chassis, pressing together 120 layers of tacky carbon fiber and then baking them to harden inside a giant pressure cooker. It's the racing equivalent of puff pastry. Beneath our feet is another, larger pressure cooker where they can bake the chassis in full until it's as light and as strong as a rhinoceros beetle. These parts are being constantly redesigned, remade, and retested. McLaren invented the carbon fiber chassis, but it didn't take long for every other F1 team to adopt it and begin their own rush toward perfecting it. The churn is eternal obsolescence is always in the rear view. Above us is a series of elegant catwalks where Brown and the rest of McLaren Racing's executives walk together with 
sort with Sorkinese brisk briskness. I hope I got that first one right. Tinkering with new ways for their 800 employees to tinker with these two cars. No one here is not working. Many of them will be forlowed once the pandemic has taken root. But today, everyone is either doing something or painstakingly sketching out what needs to be done. In terms of both aesthetics and productivity, this building represents the apex of sleek corporate design right down to the inexplicably terrible guest Wi-Fi. I'm glad I made time to shower before I arrived. I'm led upstairs in a circular glass elevator to a waiting room where I'm confronted with a statue of late McLaren god Ayrton Senna at the 1991 Belgian Grand Prix. Senna, killed in a 1994 wreck, has been immortalized in bronze for this bust in his seating, sorry, in his seated racing position but disembodied from the car. From this stately holding pen, I'm led over to Emerson Fittipaldi dining room where crystal stemware and a set of lunch menu await us. I've offered two kinds of warm bread. Brown enters the room all brewesque energy. I hope I got that right. Hiding just behind his watch face is a thin red string his wife gave him that he wears around his wrist at all times. She wears a matching string of her own. A waiter, I guess, pours Brown a glass of red wine, bestowing us with a proper power lunch mood. I'm getting a fat steak. Despite the wine, Brown is having a salad. Why are you on a diet? Just general health? He gestures to his own bulky torso and then gives me a gentle roast. Because I don't want to look like you. <laughs> He's a valley boy from Los Angeles County, even though he doesn't look like doesn't look like it there anymore. He was, by his own admission, juicing terrible in school. Felt like work. He was an enormous baseball fan and remains so to this day. As a child, he would stalk his favorite baseball players, researching their preferred haunts and tracking them down in hopes of scoring an autograph. He called Stan Musile? I'm sorry if I got that wrong, and I probably did. At Stan's preferred bowling alley, he called for Joe, for Joe DiMaggio at DiMaggio's favorite restaurants. If you've ever read anything about Joe DiMaggio, you know what a dangerous gambit this was. Young Zach Brown was undeterred. Dave Winfield told his mom to shut up once when she asked if he would sign something for her son. When Brown handed George Brett a baseball to sign, Brett threw the ball right back at him without signing it. He once called Mickey Mantle's golf club in Dallas, and the Preston Trails Pro pulled Mantle off the course to take the call, assuming someone vital was on the other end of the line. Mantle got on the phone and screamed, Who the hell is this? Mess <laughs> F you, and hung up. I've just been told to F off by my hero. I'm like juicing suicidal. I told my mom the story. She called me back 20 minutes later. Pack your bags. We're going to Dallas. And so they did. They flew to Texas and spent half the day with Mickey God dang man, man, uh, Mantle. There, Mantle regaled Zach with stories about getting loaded with Whitey Ford at the 63 All-Star Game. Then... He gave me five bucks to go play some video games because I think he got tired of talking to me. <laughs> a salesman was born. Brown has lived in the nearby town of Oxshot since 2013. What a name. And has no intention of returning to the States. He may even become a British citizen at one point, given his pronounced distaste for the American tax system. An odd grievance, given how accommodating our tax system can be to men of his wealth. Despite his background as a semi-professional racer, Faster than all the other team bosses, he jokes. 
The executive relationship he forged with McLaren started not on the track, but when he arranged deals between them and sponsors like Johnny Walker back in 2005. By 2013, he had sold JMI and was poised to join F1 corporate before McLaren shareholders ousted then-CEO Ron Dennis and began sniffing around the Yankee marketing guru with whom they'd grown increasingly cozy. The fact that McLaren was underperforming at the time only added to the job's appeal for Brown, himself a lifelong McLaren fanboy. I liked that we were not in a good place. I felt like I could make a difference. Since he took over at the end of 2016, McLaren's streak without a first place, without a first place finish remains frustratingly intact. They also endured an even longer streak without a podium finish top three since 2014, which signs mercifully, mercifully, <laughs> mercifully ended when he placed third at the Brazilian Grand Prix in 2019. Then there was the steering wheel fiasco at the Indy 500, which Brown attributes to a combination of inattention, insecurity, and team arrogance. I liked that we were not in a good place. I felt like I could make a difference. So, the famous steering wheel, he begins. We thought we would do our own steering wheel to get Fernando Alonso exactly what he wanted, and that people should see it's a McLaren steering wheel. So we spent all this time trying to develop a steering wheel that ultimately we ended up not using. We just didn't get ours done in time, and then by the time we, rec we recognized it, you don't just go to Halfords and buy a steering wheel. You've got to order them, and they've got to be fitted. So we were arrogant in thinking, we can do steering wheels. We do steering wheels. Well, it seems that the genesis of the problem might have been prioritizing branding over performance. Yeah, it was. We're McLaren. We'll make a good steering wheel. The best steering wheel. Correct. How do you prevent that sort of misplaced prioritization in Formula 1 going forward? Let's get the basics right. Let's not, let's not try and be too cute. Let's not think we're smarter than everyone else. There was definitely some arrogance that went into our lack of preparation. Does that stem in some part from your extensive marketing background? Definitely not. No? The steering wheel, I thought we shouldn't do. And when I heard it, I was thinking, why are we doing that? So, not your idea. Oh no, definitely not. I pushed back on that, but then I got the, we're very close to having it ready. Don't worry, we've come this far. We might as well finish it. Whose idea was it? I don't want to point fingers. That was a good example of where I should have just said, no, juicing no steering wheel. Go buy one off the shelf. It gets lumpier. Back over on the Formula 1 team, Brown split up the three-headed dragon of Tim Goss, Peter, I can't figure out how to say your last name, I'm really sorry, and Matt Morris, all of whom were in charge of designing the car but couldn't get along with one another. That was an organizational setup that was done by Martin Whitmarsh, the previous racing CEO, and it never worked. Brown channeled those responsibilities into a single man in James Key, as he tells it. The hiring of Key, along with several other new team members, was the culmination of him identifying high hierarchical problems he inherited with the job and then correcting them as quickly as he could in the face of signed contracts, scattershot availability of outside talent, and F1's endless lead times. Meanwhile, he had to replace Alonso as his F1 driver, re-upping him for another go at Indy in 2020 instead, and he had to replace Honda, which had, pro which had provided engines to McLaren in a $130 million agreement that was lucrative financially and onerous from a pure performance standpoint. Brown tells me that he knew Brown tells me he knew that Honda would eventually get their crap together and produce a better engine. But he also asserts that neither Honda nor McLaren would have seen their prospects improve had they remained partners. Would I like to have Honda's engines today? To have yeah, Honda's engine today with the money they were giving us? Sure. I don't think the changes that we both made would have happened without the divorce. 
so really Honda should thank you. I'm not sure they see it that way, but they're good people. Indeed, in 2019, Honda did produce a better engine. It just so happened that those engines ended up powering cars for Red Bull, which finished in third place. Switching to Reynolds' engines, McLaren finished one spot behind. By the 2021 season, McLaren will switch power plant providers yet again, reviving an old relationship with Mercedes-Benz. Let's talk about fourth place for a moment, because above it is a carbon fiber ceiling that McLaren cannot yet break. I've shown you the guts of McLaren's operations up in Woking. The precision of the team's inner workings still haunt me. They make me feel like a useless piece of crap by comparison. I am a useless piece of crap by comparison. I can't design anything. I work in track pants I bought at Dick's. Then we have something a little weird in this article. It's some seemingly separate thing known as card of gold. Let's begin reading. Zach Brown can't even fit in this 39-year-old obsolete go-kart, so why did he pay $93,000 for it? This single-seat go-kart is almost certainly the slowest and least powerful racing vehicle in McLaren CEO Zach Brown's impressive collection, and you won't see Brown driving it at the historic races at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, as he does with his Porsche 935 JLP3 or his Audi Quattro Trans Am car. So why does Brown care about a long outdated 135cc single cylinder toy that's too small for him to even drive? Because it was touched by the hand of genius. Ayrton Senna was the most famous driver of his generation and Brown's favorite, and this kart was one of the last of the Brazilian was one of the last of Brazilian legend ever raced. A preternaturally talented kart racer in his youth, Senna won the South American Kart Championship in 1977. But he never managed to take the sport's top prize, the Karting World Championship, which was run as a single event, finishing as a runner-up in both 1979 and 1980. The following year, Senna moved to the next rung of the ladder that would soon carry him to Formula 1, competing in and winning the British Formula Ford 1600 Championship. But his failure to nab Karting's international crown rankled him, and he decided to try again, entering that year's World Championship in Palma, Italy. Brown's cart is the one he used, built specially for him by Italian constructor Dapp with a frame designed by his former karting teammate and 1973 karting world championship, no, world champion, Terry Fullerton. There was no fairy tale ending. Top flight karting regulations had changed that year to allow a brawnier 135cc engine. Senna had grown up racing 100cc machines, and the Dapp's frame struggled with the increase in performance. His Dapp engine was also down on power compared to the more popular Comet being run by the rest of the field. Despite several podiums, he ended the overall competition in fourth place. He would return in 1982 with a stronger cart, but engine problems relegated him to 14th. The 1981 cart was sold pretty much as soon as the event finished. The buyer seems to have kept it in storage for the next 35 years. In 2015, it emerged from this long hibernation to be sold by Bonhams in Paris. Brown bought it against some fierce competition for the equivalent of $63,000. That's a huge amount of pay for an obsolete cart, certainly one without championship pedigree. But if that fact ever bothered Brown, he could always wander one floor down from his office to the 1988 MP4-4 on display at the McLaren Technology Center. Senna took the Formula 1 World Championship in that one. Alright, back, back to the original article. And yet... During normal business times, that perpetual Santa's workshop in Surrey toils in service of a team that currently occupies with a cruel permanence a lower class of, of Formula One team. 
This isn't an opinion I chance upon as an observer. I hear it from Brown himself. I hear it from everyone with the team. They have little interest in deluding themselves. All of this reorganization and endless perfecting is being undertaken with the dream goal of finishing in third place. Third. I ask Brown how far McLaren is off from that goal. Far. And we know that we're, gonna make, that we're not going to make that up. Reality is we finished fourth. Fifth and sixth are not far behind us, so while we're focused on catching third, fifth and sixth is not out of reach. Either is the reality. What's causing the gap that you can't bridge just yet? Primarily money and good use of that money. He is not exaggerating. According to Brown, Ferrari and six-time consecutive champion Mercedes occupy their own budgetary stratosphere with $400 million to throw around annually. Behind them comes Red Bull with $300 million. Behind Red Bull sits McLaren and, Re and Renault, both operating with budgets of $225 million. A year from now, Formula 1 is scheduled to impose a brand new $145 million spending cap across every team, a cap that Brown and other owners have been screaming for, and one they hope makes F1 fair, or as fair as anything in this stratosphere of industry can be. Not only does it believe the cap is necessary to keep Formula 1 solvent, but such altruistic measures could also in a bit of serendipity, aid McLaren even further in catching up. With the budget cap coming down significantly, it will put us and others on a more equal playing field, which is a good place for the sport and McLaren, and McLaren to be from a competitive standpoint. The COVID pandemic forced the issue in a positive way. It needed to be done. So now you see how a team that seems to have so much actually has so little. The margins for error are so thin here, and yet the margins of victory are so consistently wide. You could play the world's smallest violin for McLaren, but chances are Mercedes just bought an even smaller one at auction that was crafted by Stradivarius himself. It's time to see what this car can do. I follow the McLaren team out of England and down to Barcelona. Outside of Barcelona, actually. We're at a testing session in Grenolers. I probably got that wrong. Now, with Road and Track treating me to a whirlwind tour of Europe's most average suburbs. I flew commercial here, Brown as is his wont, took a private plane. He's a famously rich man, so much, so much so that his older son, McGuire, was featured on a British reality TV, no, television show called Billionaire Kids. It did not go over well with the non-billionaire set, nor with Zach. Lawyers got involved. Anyone can do what I've done. What do you think of the show? It did not in any way, shape, or form accurately reflect reality. For example, McGuire has a chauffeur on the show. McGuire doesn't have a chauffeur. I've got a driver that my family uses. McGuire, McGuire had, had on an expensive watch. That was not McGuire's watch. That was my watch. It made it look like my son drives around with a chauffeur with a $75,000 watch on. So I was very angry about the show. Could you see that some people would think that's not that huge of a difference? I think there's a big difference between when your father's successful and he shares. Because McGuire's responsible. Does he have a fortunate life? Of course he does. So do I expect anyone to feel sorry for him because he's wearing it versus owning it? No. Do you have to be cognizant of that as a, as a parent? Yeah. That was a big wake-up call for me to point out now where I'm pretty reserved on how much I want to have out there because I know some people will take offense to it. Even though I think I've earned every single penny because I... I was once sleeping on a living room floor on an air mattress. Anyone can do what I've done. Can't they? I think so. I earned it. So why can't someone work their butt off, be passionate about what they do, and just grind and grind and grind? I think anyone can. Not like it's easy, though. As such, I must continue to grind away in coach. 
A quarter of my fellow passengers on the flight down to Spain are wearing surgical masks to protect themselves from coronavirus. At the track, Brown tells me that he believes that the Vietnam Grand Prix, scheduled for early April, will be canceled due to the pandemic. It ends up being postponed instead. He does not know yet that every... He does not know yet that every race will end up, like every other sport, in a COVID purgatory. But for now, we can still race. I walk into the paddock outside the track. Picture a NASCAR infield, only more cosmopolitan. Every team in the paddock has, has erected hospitality centers that stretch along a vast row, each one replete with tasteful drinking, patios, and VIP areas. There are designer sunglasses everywhere you look. It's like walking along a new stretch of bars some developer put up in South Beach. This is racing gentrified. Red Bull has the tallest center, naturally. Alfa Romeo has a, convoy of has a convoy of tour buses that look like giant, distended Campbell's soup cans. Mercedes has a tastefully understated center that, as you might have guessed, is located at the very front of the paddock to go with their streak of... Oh, wait, no, separate sentence, okay. To go with their streak of Constructors' Championships, they... They've also won six driver, driver's titles in a row, with five of them belonging to Lewis Hamilton. At the end of the paddock, I reach the McLaren Center. Just like back in England, this temp temporary building has no right angles. Inside the center, there's free beer and fruit salad for any team member or glad hander wishing to partake. The team's trademark papaya orange accents are everywhere, including decorative Lucy table... Votives? I have no idea what any of that means. I'm cl clearly, because I have no idea what any of that means, I'm too much of a peasant. <laughs> the rest of the building is black and white so that no other colors intrude upon the orange. There's also a, a simulator of this very track that anyone walking around the floor can play. I wedge into the simulator and promptly crash into the wall a dozen times over because I have no interest in hitting the virtual brake. Opposite the center, is the McLaren garage, where the mechanics and techs are busy prepping Lando Norris for his afternoon session. I walk by a stack of Pirelli slicks and give them a playful kick before entering the garage and, and seeing more hoses and tubes than you'd see in an operating room. There's a wall of screens plastering one side of the garage. Data. All data. I finally get a glimpse of the 2020 car. It has an awesome matte finish. Oddly, the paint job itself isn't germane to aerodynamics, even though every other goddamn part of the car is. I wonder if maybe glitter increases drag. Norris has to be loaded into the car, like a part. After he's installed in the cockpit, the crew bolts fresh slicks in place and installs another 50,000 parts around his body. The car has the same guts for both McLaren drivers. The fit of the car needs to be a little different, but the way it runs is uniform. Norris doesn't... Norris? Wow, I am so sorry. Norris doesn't get an oil slick trigger or anything, although he should. Out on the track, temperatures inside the cockpit can reach up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. These drivers have to weigh a minimum of 176 pounds, including the seat, lest teams shrink them to the size of horse jockeys to reduce ballast. Norris, who put in late hours as a simula simulator driver for McLaren before getting bumped up to the real deal, is already a small man. The kind of dude whose team hat appears larger than his own head when he puts one on. So I'm imagining pit crews force-feeding him protein glue at every turn so that he doesn't melt into the pavement and incur a weight violation. Sorry, incur a weight violation. Norris is the first driver out on the track this afternoon, which means nothing unless you're a message board commentator. 
sorry, no, message board commenter. The car, in his estimation, is reasonably good today. That's quite good for a driver, his handler notes of the review. If it were if it were up to a McLaren, the car would never be finished. After every after every testing session and race, McLaren tweaks it, tweaks and fixes and upgrades based on how the car performs and how the next course lays out. The fixes they've made since last week, which Norris won't reveal to me, lest I offer them to the highest bidder, have met his temporary satisfaction. But he won't truly know how the car performs, nor what it needs to perform better until the real races begin. In the meantime, he keeps his expectations as studiously calibrated as the CEO does. It's not easy to take big steps forward, Norris tells me after the session is over. Just because one year we've done well and we really got improvement, it doesn't mean the next year we're going to be doing the same. Carlos Sainz echoes his colleague's sentiments. Expectations are to grow in terms of positions. It would mean a massive step forward that I don't think we're going to be able to do until next year. But in terms of how close we are to the top three, to the leaders, I expect to be closer than I was last year. How's Brown been as a leader? I ask Norris. He's good. He's... yeah. You hesitated there for a second. I hesitated? He laughs and quickly scrambles to make a save. I was hesitating between saying if he was amazing or good, not the opposite. I didn't want to overdo it. He's good. Last year, in a bit of casual irony, the car struggled at medium and low speeds. This time around, it's becoming easier to handle in tight moments. That's useful to both Norris and two sides, who both have to process all of the information mid-race as it comes from the pit wall, which in turn comes from the garage and from a mission control room back in Woking, staffed by over 30 people. Not an easy bit of mental jujitsu when you're operating a steering wheel. Yes, they have them on hand today. That has 45 buttons and infinite LCD submenus, all while going 200 miles per hour. You know, fun fact. If it were up to McLaren, the car would never be finished. As I write this, F1 still has plans to hold races in 2020 without spectators. McLaren has furloughed the majority of its, of its employees during the crisis, and those who have remained working, Brown included, have taken a 20% pay cut. In a, in a follow-up interview, Brown tells me that he's optimistic the closed races can still take place. However, McLaren won't be able to compete in those races if the MTC remains shut down. And the car itself won't be able to undergo the kind of perpetual reworking that a normal F1 car, no, that a normal F1 season demands. It's impossible to develop a race car. All you can do is mechanically get it working outside the MTC with all of your design and engineering tools. Are you certain McLaren can survive this? I think we have a good plan. We've got very committed shareholders. This is economically extremely difficult and taxing on the racing team and automotive, but I'm confident we'll get through it. Do you have a plan in place if there is no Formula 1 season and it gets scrapped and you have to start again in 2021? We do have a plan in place. I think it would just be an extended version of what we're doing now. I've never felt closer to my leadership team and partners because you just talk all day and we're not on planes. So I think that's, I think there's been a lot of positives. I think we need to not just automatically go back to our old ways. Months after this conversation, McLaren will sue its creditors to avoid bankruptcy. But on the bright side, the F1 season commences in earnest. In fact, Norris will finish third in the, in the Austrian Grand Prix. The new ways have their drawbacks as well as their benefits. Zach Brown takes in Norris's test from the top of the from the top of Circuit de Barcelona Catalunya or Catalunya grandstand. The stands today are mostly empty since this isn't an actual race. They might have been fuller if we had all gotten a heads up that this might be the last sporting event we'd be able to go to all year, but we didn't. 
and that gives me all the space and time I'd like to gamble around to yeah, gamble around and take in the cars from every vantage point. And if these cars aren't running at top speed today, well they're going they're still going pretty dang fast, and they match the Spanish countryside flawlessly. I want to drive one of these cars. Not from the cockpit, of course. I'd like a remote controlled one. A smattering of fanboys make a spontaneous pilgrimages to Brown, scaling the steps and asking for selfies as Brown keeps an eye on his papaya orange love child passing by with a deeply satisfying buzz on every lap. It's not like the pummeling roar of a stock car. It's cleaner, like a folly effect. Last year, at this very track, a fire broke out in the McLaren garage. Today, everything and everyone remains at a safe, though not necessarily comfortable, temperature. McLaren Racing will never make money, certainly not with the world shut down. As with its competitors, McLaren Racing is a loss leader. Its technology gets funneled into McLaren's line of road cars because every sports car driver wants to feel like a racer. Although McLaren's total size and value as a commercial entity is, math-wise, a hair on the butt of the likes of Mercedes. From a cynical perspective, it makes perfect sense as to why a former branding horse trader was put in charge of the joint. You can make hay finishing in fourth if you look competent while doing so. But for now, I watch the 2020 McLaren do lap after lap around the track, forever in pursuit. The course is constantly testing the cars, providing new reams of data to sort through with each successive lap. I am watching competing derivatives out there, with each team ruthlessly attempting to match their rate of acceleration a micron higher than the other guys' rates of acceleration. This is a contest of the highest speed of progress. It's a pursuit that will likely never end, even if it remains in forced high hiatus at the moment. But there's purpose in that futility now, isn't there? Sometimes the pursuit is the point, even if you never chase down your quarry. And if McLaren did not strive to reclaim its sterling name, would they have had the cunning and resources to aid in ending the coming ventilator shortage? McLaren joined the Ventilator Challenge UK Consortium, which is attempting to scale up ventilator production. Self-doubt does not come easily to Brown or his team, in many ways because it cannot. Brown understands the need for this pursuit innately. He suffers from a strain of organic workaholism, where your calling and your preoccupations are hopelessly intertwined, and your work is the end and not simply the means. Back in the paddock, Brown is in his office, not a corner office because there are no corners, planning. He, like Norris, is reasonably happy with the car. All this data and all this preparation, and there's still so much yet to be known. In that way, we're still very much in the sports world, aren't we? But for now, before the green flags start waving, all is as well as can be. Self-doubt does not come easily to Brown or his team, in many ways because it cannot. As we wrap up, I ask Brown if he cried the day that Ayrton Senna died. Not really a crier, he tells me. The last time he says he cried was 14 years ago when his brother Casey was killed in a car accident on Sunset Boulevard. Was he as... Was he as into racing as you are? No. Was he killed instantly? Yeah, irresponsible driving. Him or another driver? Him. He hit a tree, driving too fast. Was he sober? Yeah. Did it affect you getting into a car after that? Nope. Not a race car. How did your parents take the loss? Terrible. They're still hurt to this day. Are they okay with you being a racing man? Yeah, they like it now. I think they're happy. I don't race as much as I used to. But he still races. He still ducks away from the team when he can go to get his racing fix. But it's an itch that no one at McLaren can ever quite scrap, can ever quite scratch to their ultimate satisfaction. The inevitable futility of that effort won't stop them from trying. Ever. Quite the contrary. It only entices them to keep racing 
headlong into the void, forever attempting to make one final glorious pass. That there will conclude this article. What an insight into McLaren Racing. Finally, we get an answer at what the hell had been happening for a long, long time and how Zach Brown had been faring. What do you guys think? Let me know in the comments below. Unfortunately, I have to close. Thank you all for watching and or listening. Mostly listening because podcast, obviously. If you enjoyed, please make sure to like, comment, share, and consider... Well, hold on. No, 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 no. This is YouTube. Please make sure to like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. I really do appreciate it if you do subscribe. Make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications so that way you're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but you don't have to want the pod to be mobile, hey, I have a simple solution for you. Boot up wherever you get your podcast, and before you set off, type in Cody's Car Conundrum, then choose the episode that you want to listen to. I will see you all soon. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars, if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.